Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. Lots of people have said to me, if I decide to follow Jesus, I'm afraid Jesus is going to ask me to be a missionary to Africa, and I don't want to go there. Why do we always think God is going to call us to serve Him in areas we really don't want to? The reality is, if God wants us to be a missionary in Africa, He's going to put such a strong desire in our hearts that we will beg Him to let us go. And then He's going to open all the doors for us. You see, when we follow Jesus, we choose to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As such, His desires then become our desires. So we want to do what he wants us to do. Today, we're going to look at the heart of a church who desired nothing more than to humbly obey God. When they obey God, did he send them to Africa? No, but their hearts were willing to go if that is what God chose for them. I'm Debbie Blank asking you if your heart's desire is to love and follow God so you're willing to do whatever he asks you to do. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. As we've seen Jesus evaluating the churches in Revelation through the past few weeks, I'm wondering, how is your church measuring up to his standards so far? We've seen examples of churches which have backslidden, tolerated or even endorsed false teaching, compromised with the world, and even one that Jesus described as being dead. We don't want to be like any of those. But there are two churches which escape his criticism and condemnation entirely, and we will be studying the second one, As we read Jesus' words and hear his promises to the Church of Philadelphia, we know that this is the kind of church we want to belong to or strive to become. In Revelation 3, 7, it begins by saying, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Now, before we talk about what's written to them, let's talk about this church. I think we all know that Philadelphia means brotherly love. Why was it named that? Because the king of Pergamum at the time, named Atalus, decided to name the city after his beloved brother, Eumenes. We have the city of brotherly love, which actually grew into a church of brotherly love, love for Jesus and love for other people. The city of Philadelphia can be seen kind of in the middle of the flatland in western Turkey. It's about 38 miles south of Sardis, and it's known for its agriculture mainly the growing of grapes, which produces wine. So their main god in that city was Dionysus, because he's the god of wine in the Greek, or he's called Bacchus for the Romans. They were near a volcano, and that volcano tended to have small eruptions, or at least earthquakes, and lots of tremors. So what happened is the people would oftentimes sleep outside of their homes. In 17 AD, there was such a major earthquake that the people actually started sleeping outside the city. It was after that earthquake took place that the city was changed, became more of a Roman city. The name was changed to Neo Caesarea, which means new city of Caesar. That'll be important as we read about the church. Another interesting facet about this church is that Philadelphia was the last church to hold its place until about the 14th century. All the other churches in that area were conquered by the Muslims and were converted to Islam. 
but not this church. It held out until the very last. So all those facts that you've mentioned do become important as we read what Jesus Christ has to say to the church that's located there. And it's also interesting, too, they have all that instability as far as the earthquakes and the volcanoes that we're going to be addressing as far as instability goes. But also, because of the volcanic eruptions, there was this rich earth that grew these wonderful vines, and so they had all this wine, which they credited to the god Dionysus, and so they were worshiping false gods in that city. Well, it's not unusual because they worship false gods everywhere. They tend to follow the gods of that particular area that can help them, benefit them in their particular industry. This church starts out with Jesus commemorating him as the one who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and who shuts and no one opens. What an interesting description of Jesus. You have to wonder why he describes himself as this, but as we read about the church, we will understand it because Jesus is holy. Holy means to be set apart, totally consecrated to God. And of course, Jesus was, and the church here was for the most part. You remember in Leviticus eleven forty four, we're told to be holy as Jesus is holy. We're to be set apart doing the work of God, whatever that may be, whether it's missionary work, whether it's sharing the gospel with your friends, whatever God calls us to do, we are to follow him. And then he's true. Now think of it. He's the only one who is true. He's the only one who has truth because his word is truth. He's someone we can trust. Can they trust Dionysus? No, because sometimes they would have good crops and sometimes they wouldn't have good crops. But the God of the universe, we can trust. So when it says he's true, it means we can follow him. We can know then that he has the truth in him and everything he says will come to pass. Because back then, and especially now, we want genuineness. We want truth in what people tell us, especially leaders, especially pastors. We want to know that we can believe in them. That's what Jesus was describing himself as so that people would believe in him. No duplicity in him at all. No deception, no lies, only truth. Then when he says he has the key of David, that signifies power, authority. We see that one other time in Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two, when it says, then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. And that's a symbol of having a key. A key unlocks a gate or a door. And only the person with the key can open it and shut it. That's a symbol of authority. When you go to Israel, there's a church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is believed to be over the spot where Jesus died and was resurrected. It's a church that belongs to primarily four different Christian denominations. But the four different denominations don't get along at all. So they have given the key to the church to a Muslim. Actually, several hundred years, this family of Muslims has passed the key down, and they're the one who opens the door and shuts the door every single day. They're the only ones that can. So even though they have no vested interest in that property, they have the authority over that church because they open it and they close it. That's Jesus. Jesus has authority over everything and everyone. So why do we give his authority to other people? 
Why do we give it to individuals? Why do we try and take it away? Why do we negate what Jesus offers us when he has complete authority? And he has the authority that comes from having the key of David. And when we hear David brought up into it, then that's a messianic indication. So we're talking about the Messiah here. He has the key that is the authority and the ownership of what the Messiah has. And he has that ultimate messianic authority over all the royal riches of heaven. He can open up and distribute to whomever he pleases the riches of heaven. In this day and age, who do we trust? Do we trust Jesus, who's holy and true and has authority? Or do we put our trust in ourselves or false teachers or those who are unworthy of our trust? As you mentioned, this is one of the two churches that had no condemnation against it. It was considered a faithful church, even the most faithful church of all the churches. What if we were a faithful church and we turn to Jesus, believing and following him as holy and true and having full authority? How would that change our world? Wow, we would have a revival like we've never known. And yet we've discredited God. We've taken him out of the picture. So not only is he no longer holy, but we don't even tend to follow him. And not only is he not true in many people's eyes, but we make up our own truth. We decide what's relative to each one of us. Oh, how Jesus describes himself here is how we should all be looking at him. And as we look to him, he is the one who opens the door for anyone who would come into the kingdom. And so it says he opens and no one will shut. No one can control what he's doing. He's sovereign. He's holy. He opens the door. No one can shut it. And he shuts the door and no one can open it. So there's no one that's going to get into the kingdom except through him. Oh, yes. And because he's God and he knows everything, in Revelation 3, 8, he says, I know your deeds. Well, he says that to most of the churches. Our deeds are not what save us. So when he says, I know your deeds, he's not saying, I follow your deeds and that's what's going to get you into heaven. No, he's saying those deeds are an aftermath of our relationship with Jesus Christ. They show, they prove our heart's relationship to him. Do we do things to be seen by men? Do we do things because we want to do them? Or do we do the deeds because Jesus is God of our hearts and we want to follow him to help other people? Well, in this case, the deeds are, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. And then in verse 10, he adds to that, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. So he gives him five accolades or five commendations as he's describing this church. And the first one is he gives them an open door. Well, that shouldn't be surprising because he's the one who opens the door and shuts the door. So what does an open door mean? It means that God opens the door and he wants us to walk through it and follow his direction because he's paved the way. Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, for a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries, he wrote. So God opens doors and he closes doors depending on the direction he wants us to go. You may recall in Paul's second missionary journey, he wanted to go into Asia and yet God said, no, he stopped him from going there. So instead he went over to Europe and began sharing the gospel in Europe. God closed a door, but where he closed that door, he opened another door. When we follow Jesus, we can trust him to open the right doors for us. 
when we look toward the door of the kingdom of heaven to know that he has opened the door for us. I think of something akin to hospitality. And when somebody opens the door, it's they're anticipating their guests and they want their guests to know that they are there and ready to welcome them. And so I have this picture of Jesus ready and opening the door, ready for his children to come into the kingdom. Now we have to be careful because sometimes we look for open doors rather than looking for what God wants us to have. Sometimes doors will be open, but they aren't necessarily God's doors. Someone once told me that Satan will give you his best before God gives you his. So we have to be careful and make sure that open door is from God. For example, I knew a religious leader one time who just kind of fell into a potential job. So we asked him, did God call you into this job? And it took him about a week or two and he came back to him and he said, no. And yet every door was open but God wasn't leading him there. It would have been disastrous if he had gone through that door, even though it was open. I think of Billy Graham. When Billy Graham was a young evangelist, he had the opportunity to become president of Northwestern College in Minneapolis, and he took it. He never really felt led to do it. He wasn't really qualified scholastically, and it really was difficult for him because he was called to be an evangelist and he was doing a lot of evangelism at the time. So he was away from the college a lot of the time, but it was an open door for him and he walked through it. When you read his biography, he won't tell you that God didn't lead him there, but he will never tell you really that God did lead him there. It was an open door and he wanted to help people. And that's why he walked through it. So we have to be careful. God will open doors, but so will Satan. So let's make sure that the open door is what God wants us to do. And in this case, God opened doors for them and they followed it. Then he says an interesting thing. You have a little power. That doesn't sound much like an accolade, but think about it. Power is dunamis in the Greek. That's where we get dynamite. And it is the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. But in this case, they just have a little power. Well, if we've got the Holy Spirit in us, shouldn't we have a lot of power? If we have too much power, sometimes we depend on ourselves instead of depending on God. In 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Paul reminds us when he said, To keep from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And he goes on to say that God said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, Paul says, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So these people had a little power, not because they didn't have enough faith. It's because they depended totally and solely on God. They were humble before the Lord. They drew near to God and used his strength, not their own. I heard a commentator one time say that they thought perhaps it was because they were a small church too. Maybe they weren't a big and powerful church. Maybe they weren't important in the worldly sense, but they had the amount of power that God gave them. It's like the mustard seed or like multiplying whatever we have. God multiplies that when we when we give it to him. So it was his power in their weakness. And remember Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So their little power was because they were humble, depending on God. 
But that little power allowed them to keep his word, which is the next accolade. And that keeping his word simply means obedience. These people were obedient to what God said. When was the last time that we listened to God? We sought out his direction and then we obeyed. In Romans 16, 17, Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. God wants us to give our heart to him, obey him in whatever he calls us to do. And it's not easy sometimes, but when we are humble and turn it over to him, then he gives us the ability to obey him and the desire. So when you keep his word, that is what that means. That means obedience. And that's what they did. They kept his word of perseverance. It was so important that what they had, they held firm to and they did. And let's go to that because that's exactly what Jesus says. They kept the word of my perseverance. What does that mean? First of all, perseverance means constant endurance, persistence, patience. And it was keeping the word of my perseverance. So they had Christ's heart and Christ's attitude about patiently enduring the word. They patiently endured in obeying the word, in sharing the word. The word was their strength, their endurance, what they held on to in everything they did. We have to ask ourselves, is the word that important to us? Somebody asked me recently, how do I get to know more about Jesus? There's a book out there called such and such. Should I read it? And my comment to her was, The best thing you can do to know more about Jesus is to start in the New Testament and walk through it, asking that God open your eyes to everything you can find out about Jesus and know about him and keeping a journal about that. And boy, will our hearts be changed. We will then know what it's like to keep the word of my perseverance. And let's not forget too, number four, we skipped over that. Jesus said, you have not denied my name. Well, in this day and age, how many people deny the name of Jesus? Maybe by omission rather than commission, where they just don't use the name of Jesus in a positive light because it might offend somebody. But these people weren't afraid to. And also remember that the name of Jesus is his character. All of the many attributes that we know about Jesus are wrapped up in his name. If we deny his name, we're denying his holiness, his truth, his strength, his worthiness, his power, all those other things of Christ. They weren't willing to deny that. Are we? When you said power, I thought you deny his name, then you deny yourself the ability to access the power of his name. And there is so much power in the name of Jesus. I think it's the reason that the enemy doesn't want us to use it. We see in our culture people who are really tempted to deny the name of Jesus. It seems like here that they must have had that same opportunity to deny the name of Jesus because they're given credit for not having denied it. Yeah, and Jesus explains in Revelation 3, 9, he says, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them to come and bow down at your feet to know that I have loved you we see the type of struggles that they had at the Church of Philadelphia. It wasn't just a piece of cake. They were dealing with people, Jews from the synagogue of Satan. We saw that over also with the other good church in Smyrna, where they dealt with the synagogue of Satan. Obviously, Satan is the deceiver. Synagogue is Jews. So Jewish deceivers trying to deceive the church into believing either to follow the law, to go back to that, or to follow their own traditions. They were struggling in a city, in a church, 
that had a lot of opposition. So much so that God promises them a reward. And that that these people eventually are going to come and bow down at your feet because they're going to know that I have loved you. God's love is going to be poured out on those people who are faithful. Sometimes when you hear that, there are anti-Semitic people who will use that description, the synagogue of Satan, to defame people who are Jewish to this day. And that's not what this means in this context at all. And so we want to make that clear. What we have here are some people who have denied the faith of their father Abraham, and their hearts are cold and closed. It says they say they are Jews, but they are not. That's because the true Jew is the spiritual son and daughter of Abraham. So you had your people who were circumcised as Jews, but Jesus said you need to be circumcised in the heart as well, and you need to be followers of Abraham in the spirit and in his faith. I'm so glad you explained that, Jackie, because we need to understand God loves the Jewish people. He still has plans and prophecies for the Jews. We would never be anti-Semitic, nor would Jesus in anything he's saying. He is just talking about a small group of people here. Now, Jesus goes on to give these people in the Church of Philadelphia compensation. What a compensation it is. In Revelation 3.10, he first promises them, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. Now, let's understand that we believe each of these churches represents a type of church, And in this case, it would be a faithful church. It also represents a church era. That being the case, this would be the missionary church era of about 1730 to 1900. So if that's the case, when we get back to this, Jesus is promising to keep them from the hour of testing. Now, this is important. It says that hour which is about to come upon the whole earth. In other words, it hasn't come yet. It's still future. Who's it going to come upon? The whole earth. Not just the Church of Philadelphia or Western Turkey, but the whole earth. And why is it going to come? To test those who dwell upon the earth. That's a very key statement because throughout the book of Revelation, you see these earth dwellers, those who dwell upon the earth. They are the people who live during the tribulation period. So Jesus is clearly talking here about the upcoming tribulation period that hasn't happened with this church, but will in the distant future. He says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. It means he's going to deliver them and not just deliver them from the hour, but means to take them out of the hour of testing. So that's a very important passage that tells us that if we are faithful to Jesus Christ, he's going to take us out before that tribulation period comes about. That's a promise he makes right here. So in verse 11, it continues that I am coming quickly. Hold firm to what you have so that no one will take your crown. And when he says quickly, he doesn't mean like he's coming right then to the Church of Philadelphia. It means when he comes, it's going to be sudden. It's going to be a surprise. And we know in the twinkling of an eye, he's going to come. So again, this relates to the time before the tribulation starts. He says, hold fast to what you have. That's a present imperative. That means continually ongoing, hold fast. And it's a command to what you have, which is their faithfulness in Jesus Christ. In order that no one take your crown, now that's a crown of victory, because we are assured of a crown of victory if we continue to persevere. He says in verse 12, he who overcomes, we haven't really talked about that in the book of Revelation, but all seven churches are 
given compensation if we will overcome, if we will conquer the flesh, if we will conquer the sinfulness that's going on, if we will prevail to victory in Jesus Christ, then we will overcome. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. Well, what's a pillar? Stability, strength. In 1 Peter 2, 5, we're told that we are a spiritual house. So we're not really going to be a pillar. But what this is saying is the people in Philadelphia were used to instability and tremors and having to go outside. And this tells us they're going to be strong and secure in God's temple. And they don't have to go outside anymore. Then he finishes their compensation by saying, I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of my city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. So they're going to get three new names, the name of God, the name of the city and Christ's new name. Remember back in verse eight, they are honored by Jesus because they have not denied his name. So he's going to take his name, his character, and he's going to give it to them because they are faithful, true followers of Jesus Christ, not what the world calls Christian, not what we might think a Christian is, but someone who really has a strong relationship with Jesus Christ, follows him in everything that he says in his word, in truth, doesn't deny his name. Ends in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We look at the church of Philadelphia and we see faithful, true, genuine followers. We think of the missionaries of the 1700s through the 1900s. We think of people like Billy Graham. We think of honorable pastors who have been faithful down through the decades to stand on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and serve him. So when we talk about the Church of Philadelphia, we're talking about true and faithful witnesses to the Word of God. We know of different missionaries who have gone out and been true and faithful witnesses throughout the world. I'm thinking about a movie I saw a few years ago called The End of the Spear about a man who had grown up knowing that his father had been killed as a missionary. He goes back to that missionary village to make friends with the people who had killed his father. It actually ends up being a sequel to the story of Elizabeth Elliot and how her husband was part of that missionary trip that ended up in the deaths of these missionaries, and yet Elizabeth Elliot and others have gone back to that tribe and have converted that tribe. And they went back and continued the job that her husband had started. But they weren't the first missionary journeys. The missionaries really kind of started in the mid-1700s. The Moravian community in eastern Germany now was believed to be one of the first sets of missionaries that ever went out. Do you know how that started? It was a church that decided that they were going to start praying around the clock for what God would have that church do. He so touched their hearts. Within five years, that community went out literally to the four corners of the earth. Obviously, Paul was the first missionary. But when we're talking about modern missions, these people were strong in converting people around the world. We're probably more familiar with William Carey because in 1793, he's the first probably well-known missionary who went to India. And we've heard of David Livingston, who traveled to Africa, actually ended up visiting about a third of that continent in the early 1800s. These are faithful people who sought God, and he did call them to Africa. But he doesn't call most of us to be missionaries, at least not in foreign countries. He calls every one of us to be a missionary in our homes, in our businesses, in our neighborhoods, in our families. 
advocates, messengers for the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we don't need to go outside of our neighborhoods to do that. We are called to be faithful to follow God's word, to obey it in everything, to have that relationship with Jesus, to listen to him and to go in the direction he calls us to go. Are we faithful like the church of Philadelphia? I want to be one of those faithful people that God says, well done, good and faithful servant. How about you? Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.